Let me invite you all now, please, to open your Bibles to the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, as today we look again at the Jerusalem Council, um, which may not sound to you to be incredibly relevant to your life situation, but it is far more relevant than I will even be able to say because it deals with the nature of eternity and how people uh, can know they're in a right relationship with God. Um, so let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. Uh, the day in which we live is a very cynical day. Uh, people have lost faith in truth, that there is any such thing as objective truth that is true, whether you agree or acknowledge it or, or not. But now uh, things have devolved to a position in which the best we can do is you have your truth and I have my truth, which is nothing more than a power play. Uh, thank God we have truth, and God's Word is the truth with a capital T. Hear now the reading of God's Word. Today we will read verses 12 through 35 of uh, Acts chapter 15. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, who is Peter, Simon, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and elders, to the brothers, who are the Gentiles, in Antioch, in Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us, and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. 
For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those whom had, who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that we would hear you today, that we would be not only those who hear the word, but do the word, put into practice what we hear. And we pray that your spirit would open our eyes, would soften our hearts, would give us all power to receive the word and for that word to work mightily in us, producing in us fruit that would abound to your glory and yours alone. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, last week we started this and we came to the conclusion that what had happened in the early church were some zealous people had gone to the uh, church in Antioch and in other places in South Galatia and told people, you cannot be a Christian. You cannot be fully received into the actual people of God unless you are circumcised, unless you submit yourselves to the law of Moses in all of its ceremonial and ritual regulation. Otherwise, you will not be clean. And we saw that uh, clearly the church in Jerusalem rejected that as false teaching. Uh, the Apostle Paul took it on. If you want to read the book of Galatians this afternoon, you will see exactly what he thought of that. Uh, and he was not happy about it. But to sort of summarize what we've been over so far, it was one thing for the Jewish leaders to give their approval to the conversion of the Gentiles and acknowledge that they were the people of God. But could they approve of the commitment to the Messiah without inclusion in Judaism? Was their vision big enough to see the gospel not as a merely as a reform movement within Judaism, but as good news for the whole world and the church of Christ, as the international family of God. These were the revolutionary questions, and in other words, the opponents of Paul were saying, not all Jewish persons are Christians, but all Christians must also be Jewish. Paul was saying the gospel is for every culture. And let me say something that I, I think about often, and that is nothing irritates the culture we live in, especially the religious culture we live in, than our claim that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus himself said so. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He is claiming 
that he is the exclusive way to a relationship with God as Father. And our culture hates that exclusivism. They, on the other hand, promote what they would call much more inclusivism. That is, that whatever way you choose, whatever way you sense is right, or however you feel, or whatever mysticism you may hold, or whatever religious approach you take, they're all equally valid. We believe in what is called pluralism. Um, and pluralism and as relativistic, that is, there is no one way to God. There are many ways. One woman put it like this to me when I was sharing the gospel with her. She said, you believe Jesus is the only way? I said, yes, I do. And she said, well, I don't. Uh, she said, it's like going to the post office. Uh, when you go to the post office, you can go. I was in a city then, Memphis, Tennessee, and she started naming all the routes she could take from her home to get to the post office. And I listened to her, and while she was talking, I was saying, Lord, give me something to say, because I don't know what to say to this woman. And he gave me this, and I said it to her, and it's, it's not inspiration, it's not Bible, but I said to her, lady, the only problem with your illustration is when you die, you don't go to the post office. <laughs> and that's true. But here is why Christianity is so wonderful. Because while it is exclusive, it is more inclusive than any other religion in this aspect. You're saved not by being a good person. You're saved not by trying your best. You're saved not by improving the quality of your life so that God will approve of you. No, you're saved by grace. Christ does it all. He takes your punishment, he lives the life you should have lived, and he gives it to you for free. So the gospel on the other end is incredibly inclusive because all you have to do to be saved is trust, look outside of yourself and trust in Christ. On the other hand, while all the religions of the world claim to be incredibly inclusive, you will, they're incredibly exclusive when it comes to judgment because you are graded on how well you do as an adherent to this religion. It's about being a good person. It's about improving yourself, reincarnating, going through pur purgatory, whatever term you want to use. And so they clamp down on the other end and nobody gets in. So the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church is a watershed moment in the history of redemption. And it is interesting to me that all, so early into the development of the church, this heresy found its way back in. And it is something we are battling constantly. Uh, everybody believes everything in the world but the gospel. And so the defense is being presented. And first we heard from Peter, and he made his points. And then we heard from Barnabas and Saul, uh, uh, Paul. But now we come to James. And uh, we're going to focus our attention on verses 13 and following as we look carefully at what James says as he addresses the church. Uh, here's, what, here's what happens. James solves the theological conundrum, and his method is to look at experience. Simon described how God took from the Gentiles a people from himself and correlating it with Scripture. He quotes 
Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. And this is a remarkable prophecy in which Amos refers to the prophecy given to David himself by Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There he tells David that he uh, will not build God a house. David will not be the one to build the temple or the house, but his son will do so. And uh, he quotes Amos in order to substantiate that, though at some points in the prophecy that is referring to Solomon, who builds a literal temp temple, yet he also refers beyond that to a son who will also do so. And that son, as we know, is the one who will reign forever and build a house that is eternal. And this is the descendant in the greater David, the Messiah. Amos then picks up this theme and talks about a future time in which God's, David's house and tent will be rebuilt by the greater David. Yet at that time, he says, a remnant, a portion of the Gentiles who bear my name will seek the Lord. Now, notice how James, and this James here, by the way, is the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not James the Apostle. Uh, we lost him in Acts chapter 12. This is the Lord's brother, James. And he was well respected in the early church. He was a church leader. Um, he was the Lord's brother with whom Paul met when he returned to Jerusalem. As a Christian, he was recognized as a pillar of the church. Uh, the mother church, along with Peter and John, and although Jesus' brothers did not believe in him during his earthly ministry, after his resurrection, Jesus appeared, we know, to James, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, and the linguistic similarities between the epistle of James and the speech of James and the council letter, which is derived from it, confirm that he is the epistle's author. James tied God's present welcome of the Gentiles to the Old Testament hope and promise. Now notice the way that James interprets prophecy. It would do well for a lot of our brothers in the kingdom of God to listen how James interprets prophecy. He sees first a literal fulfillment in that David was not the one who built the temple because he was a man of blood, but Solomon, his son, built the temple. So there is a literal fulfillment at that moment. Then there was exile and a return from exile, and the temple was rebuilt hoping for the establishment of the Davidic kingdom waiting on the one who was to fulfill the promises to David who the Bible indicates would come in the person of the Messiah. The Messiah comes and destroys the temple in Jerusalem or says the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed and then he comes and establishes a whole new tent house temple. We are now the temple of God. See how he takes an Old Testament prophecy and looks at a fulfillment then and there historically, second in the first coming of Christ, thirdly in the second coming of Christ, he will return and the temple of God will be what? Will come down from heaven and be with men. So there's the ultimate new covenant total fulfillment. And so that's what James does. And I'm not sure the audience got all of that any more than you just did, but the issue is 
James tied God's present welcome of the Gentiles to the Old Testament. He's giving biblical foundation to the claims of both Peter and Paul. James now sees that clearly the Gentiles will be considered part of David's house, not through the law of Moses, but rather through the Davidic Christ. The inclusion of the Gentiles is therefore not an afterthought or a begrudging concession or a plan revision, but this was something foretold by the prophets. He actually quotes three prophets. Uh, Isaiah, just the very first sentence, uh, uh, Amos, and then finally Jeremiah are all included in this quote. And so James sees a correlation between the experience of the church, verses 12 through 14, and the theology of the Word of God, a correlation between the teaching of the New Testament apostles, Simon and the Old Testament prophets. That, for James, is conclusive. That uh, is amazing in terms of assuring the people that what has taken place is a fulfillment of the Word of God. And then in verses 19 to 21, James comes up with a practical compromise as he takes into consideration the interest of both the Jewish and Gentile Christians. He lays down a principle that we should not make it hard for the Gentiles who are turning to God that's important for all of ministry, by the way. It's hard enough to believe the gospel. We should not insist that people become just like us as well in order to become Christians. Therefore, though, uh, uh, yet he does point out this following truth, that the teaching of Moses is extremely widespread across the area that they are now preaching and evangelizing. And the feelings about these cultural practices runs very deep. Therefore, though the Gentiles are not bound by moral principle to adhere to the ceremonial regulations, and therefore they do not have to be circumcised and take on the Mosaic law, James asked them out of love to abstain from four practices that were particularly repugnant to the Jewish people. These four things include one item that has been a problem for interpreters. The first three, that is to abstain from eating meat offered in idle ceremonies, from eating meat of strangled animals, and from eating bloody meat, these three items are clearly classified as ceremonial law, not of the abiding moral principles of the Ten Commandments. But James noticed this carefully. James also includes sexual immorality as well. And the Greek word pornea, from which we get the word pornography, translated here usually means sex outside of the boundaries of marriage with anyone or anything or creature. But since other items are clearly matters of Levitical ceremonial law, most commentators thinks, think that James is referring here to Levitical marriage laws called the laws of consanguinity. Easy for me to say. What that means is incest, marrying close relatives, which the Gentiles often did. And so some think that's what it was, but I don't. Here's what I think. I think all of these practices together form a whole as involvement 
in idol worship and the idol feast that we see occur all over the New Testament. Paul himself speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and also in Romans 14 and other places about meat offered to idols and whether you can eat it. And so clearly here, here's what was going on. These Gentiles who were being converted did not have a biblical moral ethic, okay? They were really, truly, technicolor, full-blown, full-orbed pagans. And they had practiced their entire life of going to the temple, and part of the temple ritual was the engagement of sexual immorality. There would be sexual activity going on at these idol feasts, which were done, quote, for the purpose of encouraging the gods to copulate so that fertility would abound throughout the region. So these were repug uh, repugnant to uh, those that had the Judeo ethic and understood uh, the law. The other things like drinking blood. Drinking blood in these pagan rituals had to do with receiving the life force of the animal that was killed. That if you drank the blood, you got the life force. You know, people talk like that today. I was telling Pam about this last night. She said somebody at the gym the other day talked about this vibe of receiving the life force from your animals, you know, like your dogs and your cats and your pets. I hope you don't drink their blood. Don't do that. But that's what these people were doing. It's pure mysticism. It's pure animism. It's awful. And they were doing it. And so these people had just come to Christ, and they needed some instruction of saying, you know, you might want to think about this. And Paul even went to the place of not buying meat that was sold. You know, all of us are looking for a bargain. And so if you wanted a T-bone steak in that day, you'd go by the idol uh, temples where the idols were offered, and you could buy a nice cut of meat cheaply. And so Paul says, no, knock that off. You've got to knock that off for people whose consciences are offended by that. And so that's what this was all about. It had to do with idol worship and that these pagans needed to turn from idols to the living God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And part of that meant you can no longer participate in these festivals and rituals where this idolatry is taking place that's offensive. And so Paul later on says, if eating, drink, uh, drinking uh, wine or eating meat offends my brother, I will restrict my liberty out of love for my brother. And here we see James enunciate that principle here early on in the church's existence. And so, James talks a lot here about the Gentiles being a people for God's name. James tied God's present welcome of the Gentiles to the Old Testament. And James' words, quoted out of Amos, gives validity to that. But despite the variations, James' purpose, James's purpose for citing Amos 9, 11, and 12 the restoration of the David's dynasty and the Messiah marks the point when Gentiles begin to bear the Lord's name. Literally, his name is called over them, claiming them as a people for his name, as James said in the opening. 
The closing words from Isaiah 45, verse 21, stressed that God planned long ago to include the Gentiles all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. Now he issues the worldwide invitation, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So since God was fulfilling his promise to place his name on the Gentiles, James fully concurred with Peter's refusal to impose the yoke of the law upon them. The council, in turn, would agree with James. Remember what Jesus says, Come unto me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And so James takes away the yoke of the Mosaic legislation and is replaced by the easy yoke of Christ. I'm tempted to talk more about that, but I have some other things I need to cover. So James did recognize, uh, recommend that the Gentiles be advised to abstain from these defiling practices. Neither James nor Paul nor the Gentile Christians viewed these guidelines as demanding law observance in order to be greeted with uh, the church that Jesus saves. Rather, the stipulations were greeted with joy by the Gentiles and carried by Paul as well beyond Antioch. And so scholars disagree regarding the meaning of these prohibitions, but they are drawn from holiness regulations in Leviticus 17 and 18. I don't think I'll tell you to go home and read Leviticus this afternoon. You might need a little longer to read <laughs> Leviticus. It's a challenging book. And by the way, let me say this, that's not slurring the scriptures. All scriptures is, is inspired by God, it is breathed out by God, but all scripture is not equally interesting. Read the book of Numbers. It's, that's not the purpose, it's not to entertain you, but rather to teach you uh, the holiness of God for the most part. And so the Levit Leviticus law forbade sacrifices other than those offered in the Lord's sanctuary, that would be idolatry, eating blood, eating meat from which the blood had not been drained, doesn't mean eating your steak, medium rare, by the way, and incest and other forms of sexual impurity. Nowhere in the New Testament is sexual practice treated as morally and spiritually indifferent, falling within the sphere of one's Christian liberty, more likely these practices constituted a complex of pagan, idolatrous worship in which Gentiles who trust in Jesus must no longer participate. And let me say this, if you are a new believer in Jesus Christ, there are certain things that have been in your life that have got to go. They have got to go. You cannot any longer as a believer in Jesus Christ continue to live as a pagan. They have got to go. Let the Lord apply that to whose heart needs to hear it even today. Uh, James urged the council to clarify for the Gentiles precisely what Paul was eager to stress to his converts. To become Christians, uh, the Gentiles don't need to become Jews, but they cannot remain pagans. That's a good statement. 
To become Christians, Gentiles need not to become Jews, but they cannot remain pagans. We must flee sexual immorality and idolatry, for we are not our own. We belong to a new master. A person who engages in sexual immorality commits a sin, Paul says, against his own body. And God will judge those who participate in that. And so, run from it. Repent of it. The purity of our Savior is reflected in our lives and should be a winsome witness to those who hear Moses read in the synagogues every Sabbath, as well as uh, for others who long for integrity in our increasing paganized culture. James' conclusion clinched the argument that the Holy Spirit had been building through Peter's remarks and the report brought by Barnabas and Paul, circumcision must never be imposed on the Gentiles as any kind of condition of salvation, but Gentiles must refrain from defiling practices of pagan worship to signal their allegiance to Jesus and to quell slander of his name by Jews who were steeped in the law. The council would then communicate uh, this decision not only by letter but also in person. The person of two of its leaders, Judas, called Barsabbas, which means son of the father, by the way, and Silas. The latter, Silas, would ultimately become a colleague in the future ministry of Paul after Paul and Barnabas have their falling out, which we will look at next week. You want to see a good fight? Come next Sunday. You're going to see a good fight. Now let's talk a little bit about the encouraging letter that was sent out. Really, uh, these two points are not nearly as long as the introduction in the first two points in case you're starting to panic. Okay? These are shorter. First, the encouraging letter. The letter exhibits great pastoral wisdom. Both of the apostles and the elders, not only in the decision reached, but also in the way they communicated it. Both are necessary. It, its greeting reassures the Gentile Christians of their secure status in the family of God because not only does he mention the brotherhood of all the people involved in the decision and the ones who are coming to tell them, but he includes them as brothers, equal standard. And so that was impressive. As Jews address fellow Jews as brothers because of their shared ancestor Abraham, so the leaders of the Jerusalem church embrace believing Gentiles as brothers united in Christ through whom they uh, had become Abraham's seed and heirs by faith. The letter addresses Christians not only in Antioch but also in Syria the Roman province of which Antioch was the capital, and Cilicia, the northwest region of the same province. Its content applied uh, to Gentile churches elsewhere, as we will see. In explaining the rationale for the letter, the council addressed the issue of le uh, leadership, legitimate and illegitimate. The Judean teachers who had disrupted the church in Antioch with their demand that the Gentiles be circumcised, Paul later calls this group the Judaizers, had no authorization 
from the apostles or elders in Jerusalem, the council strongly disavowed their teaching, describing its effect with two pejorative verbs, troubled and unsettling, one of which Paul applied to the Judaizers among the Galatian church. On the other hand, the letter commended both Barnabas and Paul, well known to believers in Antioch, whom the apostles and elders called affectionately our beloved and commended them for costly devotion to the name of Jesus. Because Paul recognized that the credibility of his gospel was intertwined with his credibility as a messenger, he took pains to defend his apostolic calling and conduct in both Galatians chapter 1 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 through chapter 6 verse 12. You'll see Paul defending his, ap uh, uh, his apostleship. Not defending himself personally, but his calling and being set apart. Likewise, the council affirmed Barnabas and Paul as respected co-workers in preparation for announcing its agreement with their understanding of the gospel and its implication for the Gentiles. Moreover, along with these missionaries, the council had sent both Judas and Silas, who would confirm orally the letter's encouraging message. And finally, the letter announced the decision that the council reached through deliberation. The deliberation is implied by it seemed good to us, repeating a Greek verb used earlier in verses 22 and 25. Their unanimity is expressed in verse 25 with a Greek adverb meaning with one accord. In this unanimity, they recognized God's direction of the church, that it wasn't merely a human verdict as it were but rather it seemed good to the Holy Spirit this decision was not to burden the Gentiles with the requirement of circumcision and the laws other ceremonial regulations but only to insist their dissociation or disassociation from pagan worship represented by the four things talked about in the categories and so uh, the four elements previously listed by James with a slight variation of terminology and order. James spoke first of two general categories, the pollution of idols and sexual immorality, and then two particular practices entailed in pagan sacrificial rituals, ingested, jesting, strangled animals, and blood. The latter uh, group uh, latter group, the three sacrificial terms together, what has been sacrificed to idols, blood, and strangled animals, and concludes with sexual perversions practiced in pagan worship. Gentiles need not become Jews, but they must cease being pagans when they come under the lordship of Christ. Finally, let's look for a moment at the encouraging leaders. When the delegation reached Antioch and delivered the letter, its reading evoked joy in the Gentiles who, standing by faith in the grace of God, here was clearly affirmed. Don't you let anybody ever tamper with the gospel of God's grace in your life. Anytime anybody adds anything to Christ, any Christ plus gospel is not gospel. It's the worst news you'll ever hear. The only good news is that Jesus has done everything necessary to reconcile sinners to God and that we look outside of ourselves and no longer rely on ourselves to save ourselves, but we rely upon Christ alone. 
And so the letter brought encouragement in two ways. First, it comforted Gentiles with the assurance that the Father had welcomed them into the people of God by faith alone, and it exhorted them to demonstrate the reality of that faith by shunning idol temples, as Paul would ultimately exhort the Corinthians to do. Judas and Silas, who were not only elders but also prophets, personally reinforced the letter's encouragement through their own preaching and teaching, strengthening the Gentiles as brothers in Christ. And pastors who are faithful to the gospel know our constant need as believers to have our hearts strengthened through the gospel of grace. Even after Judas and Silas went back to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they spoke of the good news contained in the Lord's word. They evangelized the people. And the power for the growth of the church is the word of the Lord applied by the Spirit of God who can change hearts. So that ends today the whole point of the Jerusalem Council. It dealt with a very difficult issue. If you were here for Sunday school, you heard Keith Turner try to lead us, didn't try, he did lead us in a discussion about how we as the church uh, could respond to the COVID virus. And while we're not apostolic and while we didn't reach a complete goal of unanimity here, these people did. And they, it's not that we have to do it exactly the way they did it, but it's worth looking at by the way they arrived at what is salvific and what is not. And they're not saying, you, as a pagan, you have to quit all this stuff and then come to Jesus when you're all cleaned and fixed up. No, it's just the reverse. You come to Jesus first, and then he will begin the process of cleaning up your life. Thank God for the gospel of grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for truth. We thank you for your word. It is a living and powerful thing that gets into our hearts and works to convict us of sin, to instruct us in what righteous living is, to rebuke us, to comfort us, to confront us, to minister peace to us. And so, Father, we pray your word would work in us. And we pray that as we consider our relationship with you and your church, we would be faithful to give out of our resources a portion of that which you've entrusted us uh, to give back to you. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, we pray that your spirit would move our hearts to sing together with joy. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.